This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. For more than three decades now, Karl Ernst, through his scholarship and his public engagement on the study of Islam and Muslim societies has modeled the finest form of intellectual inquiry and performance. The imprints of his work extend from the study of Sufism, South Asia, the Quran, arts and aesthetics, and more recently, Islamophobia in North America. Words of Experience, edited by Elise Morgenstein First and Brandon Wheeler, honors Karl Ernst's scholarly prowess and promise, not through hagiography, but by bringing together 13 essays that chart and direct a robust intellectual agenda for the future of Islamic studies. The wide-ranging essays in this volume serve as a testament not only to the variety of ways in which Karl Ernst has shaped and informed the field of Islamic studies, but also to his contribution in placing the study of Islam firmly in the broader field of religion studies and the humanities. In this conversation, we discuss salient aspects of this book and also explore some critical and previously unexplored contours of Ernst's scholarly journey, traversing multiple themes, sites and actors. Here now is my conversation with Elise Morgenstein first, Brandon Wheeler, and the one and only Carl W. Ernst. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online from the New Books Network. Uh, today, we have a very special episode uh, where uh, we are joined uh, by uh, three uh, two uh, editors of this great volume and also by Carl Ernst, whose scholarship and work has inspired uh, this volume, Words of Experience, Translating Islam with Carl Ernst. Uh, so really glad and happy to be uh, uh, to have them join in our um, conversation today. Um, I thought perhaps uh, we can start off uh, by giving listeners a sense of uh, what this book is about, what are its key themes, how it's structured, what uh, readers might uh, expect to find in it uh, when they read this fantastic volume. So I was wondering if we can begin uh, with Elise and Brandon. Perhaps you could uh, 
uh, take turns in uh, uh, describing the book a bit to us, uh, how it came about and really what's in it in terms of its different chapters and themes and so on. So you can take it as you wish, but perhaps that could be a nice way to start things off. Elise, why don't you start? Sure. Um, well, thanks for that. And thanks for that warm welcome, Shir Ali. I think that the really basics of this book is that it started as a conference in 2017 honoring Carl's contributions. But uh, as, as we probably will hear later on, Carl's a little bit reluctant to let that be the theme of the conference. The conference needed to be future focused in order for us to be allowed um, to see what was originally Bruce Lawrence's vision for a platform to think about Islamic studies and all of the elements that Carl's work has touched on in Islamic studies in this conference. And so in that conference, some of the panels were about Sufism, some about, you know, thematic meta conversations about Islamic studies, some about Indic interpretation of Islam, some about Quran. So it was really all Islamophobia, Islam in America. I mean, really everything we think about when we think about Islamic studies. And so from that conference, we built this volume, though not all presenters made it, wanted to contribute or could contribute to the volume. And we made sure to invite other folks, particularly um, advanced graduate students who uh, had something to contribute and fit within this theme of what might the future of Islamic studies look like. And it would be hard to talk about the future of Islamic studies and just make it about the senior most colleagues that we have. So I think that in terms of career scope and topic, it really is the gamut of folks still finishing their PhD work to really senior, incredibly senior members of our field. And we've got things that focus on Islam in America, Islamophobia, the history of the field of Sufism, uh, Sufism as a concept, Quran, you name it. So why don't I stop there, Brandon? What did I mess up completely? No, it was perfect. Uh, thank you for uh, for doing such a great job. So I don't have to say all those things. Um, <laughs> and I'm I'm in a little bit of a different position because um, I've known Carl now, and I was counting it on my fingers, and I almost ran out for like forty years almost. It's amazing. Um, so I'm coming at this from the other end, and. It was kind of interesting for me to be at the conference and be there with all of these uh, people who had more recently studied with Carl. So I was really happy to be able to be included in this project. And I, as I read through the, as I heard the papers and read through them, um, I just as amazed at the range of people and interests that Carl has affected. Um, and it, it, it makes, it really humbles me that, um, and plus it makes me feel amazing that I had the opportunity to study with him way back when, um, and that he had this, um, this formative effect on me. Uh, but I, I think part of what, what we tried to, to capture with the volume was the range of, of experiences, the range of effects and influences that Carl had. And so all of the, the, the variety of things and people and topics um, I think all of that is an indirect, if you will, tribute to, to Carl's influence and his his amazing scholarship. 
So I should tell listeners that for this conversation, uh, we'll be using a slightly different structure from our usual book uh, uh, interviews in that we'll go back and forth between our three guests and also uh, keep on going back and forth between the volume itself. And especially we will focus on the chapters written by the great chapters by uh, the, the editors here, Brandon and Elise, since we don't have the other 13 with us. Uh, but then also we will have some questions for Carl to think more broadly about some aspects, some very uh, select aspects of his career more broadly uh, speaking. So that we'll go back and forth between the book and the sort of larger sort of um, Carl's career that has inspired this book in some ways. So, Carl, uh, my first question to you, uh, sort of a general broad one, uh, what do you make of uh, of the book? Uh, uh, what was your reaction on seeing, as Brandon was saying, such a wide-ranging volume of uh, scholarship that is inspired by your, not only your written scholarship, but your intellectual sort of uh, persona and career more broadly? So your sort of general reaction to the volume itself. And the other question I wanted to ask you was that, you know, the book is structured around these two um, sort of parts and sections which are Karl Ernst as Sheikh Al-Qabd and Karl Ernst as Sheikh Al-Bast which is I guess inspired by the introduction to this volume by your friend and, and of course a, a, a mentor for many of us and, and a great scholar Dr. Bruce Lawrence um, I, w- I really wanted to ask you what you make of this categorization uh, of the master of contraction and expansion uh, so th- let's begin with that question well, thank you very much, Shar Ali. Uh, this is really a, <clears throat> a wonderful moment, and uh, I, I'd also like to thank once again Elise and Brandon for all the work that they have done to make this <clears throat> possible. Uh, to look at this volume, to me, was really kind of an amazing experience and uh, clarifying in some ways, uh, because you don't get to appreciate uh, your contributions, and um, unless through the eyes of another. And so uh, I feel very grateful that I've had the opportunity to work with so many different talented and gifted people and uh, to encourage them, the ones I've been able to mentor, uh, to move ahead. And it gives me uh, confidence that we are in a very vital and uh, uh, intellectually vibrant field and that the future is indeed bright uh, because of the excellence uh, of the uh, people involved and the way in which they've taken on the challenges, uh, some of which I've been able to articulate and uh, to encourage them to focus on. So um, I really feel that this is an excellent uh, demonstration uh, that uh, Islamic studies is a field that is going to be growing in important ways in the future. And this is so uh, important because the problem that I experienced when I was uh, trained in graduate school at Harvard many years ago and then moving into the academy was to see how Islamic studies was narrowly defined as an esoteric alien subject, which was peripheral to the humanities and the social sciences. So that integration of knowledge is really what I've been striving to uh assist and I think that we're um, we're on the way to doing that now on the um, issue of the Sheikh al-Khub and Sheikh al-Bas it was a brilliant ingenious formulation that Bruce is always capable of producing and uh, he's very good at these uh, antitheses and dyadic uh, formulations uh, this is a classical concept that occurs in, in Sufism which is a field I've spent a lot of time on and uh, the compression or the expansion or the, the dynamic movements between the um, particular and the universal, if you like, or 
I, I think that's uh, a really interesting insight, and we'll talk about some of our other particular subjects uh, in a moment, but it seems to me that what I've discovered over the years is that one of the most effective things to do is not to hit people over the head with an argument that's totally based on theory and on technical terminology, but to provide them with a particular example that current ex- current uh, expectations do not account for. In other words, something that doesn't fit. And this becomes the occasion to rethink the relationship of the particular case with theory, and in many cases to revise the theory. So the compelling example to me is perhaps the most uh, useful tool that we have in our repertoire, and that begins in the classroom where you pose a, a fascinating case to students that breaks their stereotype, and that is the opportunity to make a breakthrough, and uh, and I think it works in the realm of scholarly inquiry as well. Um, you know, one thing I mentioned, Brandon, before you logged in was, please, please feel free to jump in at any point in this conversation, our three guests, if you want to tag along any comment, etc. I have some questions that I will go through, but of course, please feel free to jump in at any moment. One more question for Carl, and then we'll come back to Elise and, and, and Brandon. Um, so you mentioned uh, your uh, uh, graduate school experience here, Carl, and of course, this mm-hmm. point that you've just mentioned is one that defines not only your scholarship, but your general sort of... Um, what we've, been, what we've been hearing from you for many years now in terms of uh, a model for Islamic studies that combines a sort of philological study but with broader theoretical concerns and interventions. I do think our listeners, though, will, will uh, be very interested in learning a bit more, um, for those who may not have had a chance to hear from you about this, about your graduate school experience, uh, you know, working with a towering figure in our field, Mm-hmm. Uh, Anne-Marie Schimmel and others, etc. Could you tell a bit to our listeners what was graduate school like uh, for you, how you saw your place in the broader field of Islamic studies while in graduate school and also upon graduating? Some reflections, if you could provide yeah. our listeners on that experience. Well, uh, I think in retrospect, people today would regard the training that I received at the time as being uh, rather narrow. Uh The uh, emphasis on philology was, of course, there, and uh, I studied uh, Arabic, Persian, and Greek uh, in significant amounts during that time. And there is something that's irreplaceable about the experience of sitting in a circle with a a real teacher who knows the subject, and everyone has to read the text, everyone has to translate the texts, and then we get into the depth of the vocabulary, the concepts, and uh, reading it slowly is a a way to grasp things on a level that is just uh, hard to duplicate any other way. Uh, But I really had to, in fact, as uh, I've discussed this with many of my colleagues at the time, um, we had some very talented people who were at Harvard then, and yet we felt that um, we had to educate ourselves in a bit of a switch from the usual Uh, format uh, in terms of theory, and we had to do it uh, in a very empirical fashion. Uh, In other words, as we reach particular tasks, we would try to take on new insights. Over the years, I've learned so much in particular from attending conferences where I was hanging out with people and listening to presentations on subjects that were outside of my uh, comfort zone. And 
to get into post-colonial theory and to uh, absorb other kinds of perspectives that were breaking. You know, you have to remember that um, when I was in graduate school, there were two major events that took place that really turned everything upside down. One was uh, the Iranian Revolution, and the other was the publication of Edward Said's Orientalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, both of these really challenged so many of the assumptions that people had about the comfortable Orientalist uh, discipline of sitting in your study with a dictionary and decoding the writings of an alien civilization. So uh, it was uh, it was something which we found the graduate school both prepared us for and also completely was not to uh, take us to the level we needed to be. But uh, to have the experience of working with uh, people like Anna Marie Schimmel, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, um, and people outside of my field. For instance, I was a teaching assistant for Albert Lord, the great uh, specialist in Homeric epic and the oral composition of uh, texts. And so, um, but as my students well know, I am very insistent on knowing the history of words and the way in which they reveal the changes in culture over the uh, centuries and across uh, distances. And I like to see that as uh, a painless way into theory, rather than uh, starting with the abstract uh, arguments and the jargon of the particular schools of thought, to begin from the, uh, the challenging texts themselves and to see where they take us. So I that's a sort of a quick capsule of what I <laughs> came away with from Harvard. So, Elise, I want to turn to your uh, uh, really, really fascinating, interesting chapter in this in this book, and uh, I was very glad to see that, especially because it shows that the the scope of this book is not just limited to Carl's uh, academic publications per se, but the sort of broader sort of uh, I guess intellectual um, presentation and persona that he offers uh, as a model for other scholars and students of Islam. Um, so uh, tell our listeners a bit about your argument in this chapter about the importance of, I guess, what we today call public-facing scholarship and, and networking, etc. And I was very intrigued by this category that you employ in this chapter, uh, performing Islamic studies. Uh, could you share a bit, some fragments of your argument and what this category means with our listeners? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that I think it actually comes back to what Carl was just saying about, you know, what we imagine this uh, Orientalist scholar sitting in a in a library with dusty tomes and maybe dictionaries, but maybe they were so successful they didn't need those dictionaries anymore. This solo genius um, thinking smart thoughts without a community, without a collaboration, um, and really without guidance. And so I think that image of like a stuffy, crusty old professor, um, you know, sitting with leather, both like a, a wingback leather chair and leather arm patches, the whole, the whole imagination of some Oxbridge fake faculty member, because those folks have never existed, right? Like that imagination of a solo genius is a product of really misogynistic, really sexist, really racist understandings of what a being a perfect white brain looks like. And I think in this chapter, what I was trying to do was to suggest that it's not just about what Carl has written. It's not just about this information that he has translated for us, whether that's literally translating from, from um, 
uh, languages that aren't English or whether that's um, mediating information between and among theoretical backgrounds or from cultures and communities that, that one reading wouldn't necessarily be familiar with. I was trying to make the claim that his scholarly footprint is also about the way that he does Islamic studies. And so in the chapter, I said something like, we can write Islamic studies, we can do Islamic studies, but then also we're performing Islamic studies. And I said, uh, if I remember my own argument correctly, that performing Islamic studies is about taking seriously one's publics. And our public might be our students or our classrooms. It might be our various campus communities. So the, the people beyond just the students we're teaching. So where we're housed and and whom we speak with. And then lastly, I said, um, how publicly we want to talk about Islam or Islamic studies. So that could be, you know, in a more traditional public facing understanding like op-eds or um, public lectures. But I was really keen to make sure that we understood that the scholar of Islam is never just a dude in an armchair reading in Persian because we teach students and we exist in public. And Islam is so heavily politicized that all of those machinations mean that the work we do are are also inherently politicized. And so performing Islamic studies assumes a public and then doing that with some aplomb or some ethics looks like knowing that you're addressing a public and not pretending to just address fellow academics or addressing fellow academics when you want to and when you need to in your writing, but taking care and taking mind of the various publics. And then I don't want to say changing your message, but scaling that up and back. Again, like Carl was saying about the interesting anecdote that shatters stereotypes in a classroom. That's an example of performing Islamic studies. Your students don't need to know every single detail that makes that story um, historically relevant or culturally sound or why the stereotype exists. They need that little pithy story as a way in, and then you can teach the rest around it. And performing Islamic studies for me functions in that way. Terrific. Carl and Brandon, would you like to jump in at all on this theme? I was struck, Carl, in your introduction, you did talk about, you know, um, how you, uh, as someone who was in a, eventually when someone who was in a public university after having taught and being part of private universities yes. for many years, this part of networking became very central to you. And I, uh, Brandon, if you also want to join in, in your very interesting context of being at the U.S. Naval Academy, this whole question of presenting Islam and, and so on, and specialist scholarship to a broader audience, uh, if you guys want to comment a bit on this theme of Elisa's chapter. Yeah. Let me just briefly say something and then pass it over to Brandon. Um, um, I've also become conscious over the years that um, because of the very limited number of people in the field of Islamic studies and the large number of issues that come up uh, inevitably, we are all called upon to uh, know something and be able to say to the public something about the Quran, about terrorism, about Islamophobia, about uh, immigration. Um, it, it just goes on and on. And so I think that if it's handled well, it means that we are capable of uh, interacting with uh, broad sectors of the university and the public in ways that are positive. And there are lots of different um, needs. Brandon, I'll never forget once I was visiting you at the uh, Naval Academy and one of your colleagues said to me, you people in the um, 
research universities are sort of like boutique doctors who have a nice little practice in the suburbs. We are the emergency room. Yeah, I'm curious now who that was. <laughs> um, let me, let me um, rather than responding directly to this, just tell you all a, a, like a brief story that will illustrate some of my experience. So um, without giving too much background, um, there's a program that the Navy has where they put civilian um, scholars on strike groups that are going um, overseas. So generally you get on like an aircraft carrier in San Diego or Norfolk, and then you get off and row to Spain or in Hawaii. um, And you've got like a week or 10 days and you're supposed to present briefs mostly to the aviators. So these are rooms of like 20 or 25 people. Um, and your briefs are not supposed to be like intelligent briefs. And they're also not supposed to be, Hey, when you get off the ship, are you supposed to shake hands or what, you know, yeah. not a cultural thing, but you're supposed to kind of provide them some, you know, like theoretical education. So I remember, um, I was giving a talk to a group of aviators. Um, and I don't even remember the talk now. I think it was on political Islam or the right. Islam state or something. Right. And um, I, I finished the whole thing and I, you know, 15 minutes, right? And so this, this young, young guy, he's in his twenties, raised his hand and he, and he dead serious asked me, like, if I get shot down over Iran, like, should I just kill myself? And I, and I just, I, I didn't know what to say, but it struck me later that the, that there's such a huge gulf between sometimes what we think we're doing and the kind of practical questions that people have. Um, and I don't, I don't know what to say about that. And I don't know whether, you know, I don't really want to comment on it, but that's, I've had a lot of experiences like that. And I think that, that the way that Carl has approached the study of religion um, is a way that's allowed me to think better about how we engage with the public, whether it's a very specific public with a mission that's going to to engage um, people directly from the culture that you think you're studying, or it's just people in general who are, are interested. Hmm. Fascinating. So uh, coming back, Carl, to sort of the your intellectual trajectory a bit. We we'll sort of keep going back and forth between the chapters of this book and this trajectory. It struck me as I was thinking about questions to ask you that next year will mark the 30 years of um, the publication of uh, uh, really this uh, uh, incredible and path-paving uh, book, Eternal Garden, uh, Mysticism, History and Politics at a South Asian Sufi Center, which of course centered on Khuldabad and Tishti Sufism, etc. I wanted to ask you... Um, uh, if you want to reflect a bit on um, uh, this publication almost 30 years after it came out in terms of its argument, the way it interrupted nationalist historiographies and its argument in the broader field of Islam and South Asian Sufism. Um, and I also think it will be uh, useful for listeners to learn a bit about how did you make this transition to South Asia and to South Asian Sufism after your first book, Words of Ecstasy? Well, um, I had the opportunity uh, when traveling and doing my doctoral dissertation research in uh, India. Well, that was because of the Iranian revolution. Uh, I couldn't go to Iran, so we canceled that trip. 
And so um, with uh, help from Anna-Marie Schimmel, um, I was able to go to this uh, shrine in the uh, western central part of India, the place you mentioned called Holdabad, and I was given an extraordinary access to uh, rare documents that were impossible to find anywhere else, diaries kept from the 14th century, uh, manuscripts that had uh, a huge documentation of the internal life of a Sufi community from uh, 700 years ago. And uh, this also included... um, Revenue documents from the Mughal emperors uh, for the financial support of the shrines. And so uh, I knew this, this was going to be a big job. The approach that I took to that was to take this as a micro study to look at all the major issues that cross into the study of Islam in South Asia. And so uh, there is a section about Indian perceptions of Islam, uh, Muslim perceptions of India. Uh, discussion of religion and empire under the uh, sultanate and its relationship to Mongol imperial ideas, uh, and a whole range of topics that were important to understand these very specific documents. And so uh, I took a long time to do that. That book took me uh, over 10 years to write. And I felt that it was, I'm especially glad that it's been reprinted in India where uh, people can get access to it. And uh, it's recently just been translated into Persian. It's going to be published in Iran. And uh, uh, believe it or not, there's an Urdu translation that has not yet been published. And so I'm hoping that uh, that will happen too. But it seems to me that uh, people in India were very interested in my uh, observations. The uh, ideological factors which surround... uh, issues of religious identity in India, as everyone in in this panel knows, are very intense and uh, very difficult to negotiate. So I think like many scholars who've ended up dealing with the subject of Islam in India, uh, I feel like there is an important public of uh, thoughtful intellectuals who are not necessarily in academic uh, situations, but who need to have resources like this in order to enter into a civic uh, debate that hopefully will improve in the future in in India and Pakistan and similar societies. So uh, I think it was a great opportunity. There are, by the way, uh, I always tell my students this, there are undoubtedly numerous subjects similar to the Khodabad manuscripts which are waiting for a talented person to bring it to light. And uh, there is no dearth of opportunities to uh, open up unexplored territories in scholarship. So I'd like to just make that plug for the field that there's lots of things that are uh, waiting for you, anyone who's interested in these subjects. Ranan, I want to turn to your very intriguing uh, chapter in this book, um, and I'll let you uh, tell our listeners the theme uh, that it has regarding the questions of translation, authenticity, etc. Um, could you uh, share a bit w- w- uh, which fragment of Carl's uh, scholarly corpus you you uh, uh, focus on in that chapter, and what kind of, of provocation regarding the question of translation that you present uh, in that in that chapter? If you could uh, share that with our listeners a bit. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Let me let me first say though that um, just kind of to share with you the kind of teacher that uh, Carl was for me and continues to be. That um, he 
he he may not remember, but maybe he will, that he had me work on that book, the Eternal Garden book. I needed money one summer when I was in college, and he's all, "Hey, you know, I need some. I need someone to go." And and I remember making the map on my Mac 512 at the time or whatever. And, uh, and I think he actually included the map, I think in the book. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You were the Mac, the Mac master. That's exactly. Um, so, so Carl, that was the kind of teach. And, and I remember, um, in college too, um, one day, and this, this was related to my chapter one day, uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith came to campus to, to the colleges to give a talk and he ended up in our class that Carl was teaching. I think it was the medieval India class. And he's sitting there with like three students. And one of them was given a talk on Zoroastrianism. And afterwards, uh, Wilfred Campbell Smith's just like, yeah, you know, I've often thought the same thing, you know, about Zoroastrianism. <laughs> and, and I remember Carl invited me. Muhammad Arkun came to give a talk. And Carl invited me to have yep. lunch with him at the faculty club. And I'm so I, I've, I've had these amazing experiences. Um from from being from being mentored if if i'm allowed to use that term by carl he's introduced me to so many people and he's introduced me to so many ideas so so my my chapter was really hard for me to write it was really a challenge and i didn't know what to do and i wanted it to be something that carl would understand and i wanted to take it from my my experience of having learned from him but also um not just not just a, a, a research piece about some topic that I had picked. Um, so I I had often been fascinated um, by this this idea that somehow the the Orientalist or the scholar, let's use a less charged term, knows more about the text. I'm using that term in quotes than than the readers of any particular version of it or the people who were using it at the time that you're studying it. And he had written about this um, years ago, and um, I, I, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but he was, he was studying these Sufis that were chanting this text in Ottoman Turkish, and I think he said something like they didn't have the slightest idea that they were chanting what originally were Sanskrit mantras addressed to a Hindu goddess. And, and I thought, I thought, this is so fascinating. How do I balance the fact that, that I might know more about the text than the people I'm studying who are using it? Like, how do you do that and not come off as an Orientalist? Because I, I, I knew from Carl that was bad. <laughs> you know, we want to do that. Um, so so this, this paper was, it was kind of my attempt to try to to try, it's I, I the the way I was finally able to write it was I said I'm writing a paper for Carl, like it's an assignment. He told me to write this thing, um, and I, at the end of it, I felt more like what students do today. They send you a rough draft and they say, "Is this is this what you're looking for?" Before I send you the final version, um, and and so so what what I tried to do was address the um, I picked four people all of whom Carl had introduced me to in one way or another, um, either directly or indirectly. And I tried to figure out, like, why did he introduce me to these four people? Do they have anything in common? And what can I learn from that about this question of how we balance what we know with what we're trying to know? And I, I, just, I, I ended up discovering three, you know, three things in common with all three of them. Um, but the, the, 
for me, this piece allowed me to acknowledge something that I had never really been able to articulate before, and that is that that I I've come to learn, at least for myself, that all knowledge is experiential, and um, I can't know something just by reading it. Um, even if I were to just read it, my reading of it's affected by all the other experiences that I've had. So one of the things I learned from Carl, which is part of the the chapter, part of the reason the three, the four people are so important is you've got to go there. You've got to go. Even if you're studying something that's been gone for 2000 years, you still got to go there and you got to talk to people and you have to experience it. So, so Charlie, I don't know if that, if that really captures my no, chapter. Absolutely. But kind of. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Um, uh, that's a good segue uh, for the next sort of theme I want to uh, talk to Carl about and then come back uh, to Elise and Brannon, uh, which is that, uh, you know, one of the key themes, Carl, that has animated your scholarship, uh, especially in the last couple of decades, is this uh, whole theme of uh, Muslim encounters with Hindu thought and practice that you've examined in many different uh, ways and many different articles, etc. Many of them have actually come together in this volume, uh, Refractions of Islam in India, uh, uh, that came out in 2016, Reflections of Islam in India, rather, Situating Sufism in Yoga, that came out in 2016. I wanted to ask you, um, uh, what has drawn you to this topic uh, so much over the years? And in so many different articles that this keeps on coming up, this one uh, theme that was also there in Eternal Garden, as you mentioned. And um, I know you've written many different articles on this theme, but what would you say are some of maybe two or three major arguments or, or findings that sort of bring together these various different articles on this larger theme uh, that in some ways might distill your contribution to this topic? Well, uh, Sher Ali, the, uh, the uh, initial impetus for my uh, approaching this particular subject was continually running into this Orientalist theme that uh, Sufism is... Uh, derived from India or from yoga or from something else. It was a, uh, a particular theme that was, I mean, uh, basically European scholars uh, thought that Islam was bad, but they liked Sufism, so they tried to figure out it must come from somewhere else. And so I asked myself, what is the evidence? And so that began a long, long uh, path of searching through various places for this material that falls between the stools of uh, Middle East and South Asia, uh, and has often been lost and forgotten in strange places. So uh, this led me to investigate these uh, texts that have been translated about uh, yoga and Indian uh, religious thought. And this, in my mind, also needed to be collect, uh, connected to the categories of religious studies, which is a very important uh, theoretical issue. Uh, what are religions? How do we distinguish them? Uh, what are the subgroupings that, that occur? And so think about the language that we use, religion, church, sect, uh, teach ideology, practice, community, congregation. There's a whole series of terms which all come from the history of Christianity. And so within Islamic thought, there is a different set of terms. And within Indian thought, there's an, another set of terms altogether. How do these match up? Um, I'm working towards a collection of uh, essays, which will be about sort of concepts of religion in early modern uh, South Asia. And this uh, 
pays a lot of attention to the Muslim writers about India and the categories that they use to describe uh, its different religious traditions. But it also faces a very important turning point in the colonial era when the British impose their own uh, categories uh, on everything else. And they do so very forcefully and effectively uh, by using instruments of colonial rule like the census, the courts, and uh, education. So... um, this is a huge kind of narrative to do it one, so one has to attack it from different specific uh, points of view. But fundamentally, for those of us in religious studies, we need to know where our categories come from and what is at stake in using them. And to see the way that the categories themselves have been deployed in social reality uh, is also another uh, very important factor. I find this to be a fascinating problem, and um, I think it's one that hopefully we can uh, articulate in a way that not only influences research, but that can help public understanding of the really important issues in, in religious difference that we constantly face in our lives and in our societies. Um. So my, my next uh, uh, question is uh, both for Elise and for Brandon and um, uh, ask it in different ways. At least in your uh, chapter, second part of your chapter, uh, you talked about this idea of um, conversational parity. Um, and I would like you to maybe talk a bit more about how that uh, connects to uh, Carl as a scholar, mentor, etc., what you meant by that. And uh, Brandon, uh, connected to that, as you mentioned, and you've talked about this already a, a bit, but perhaps uh, I'll phrase it slightly differently here, as you know, someone in the unique position of uh, being someone who was Carl's perhaps first advisee as an undergraduate, who's now gone on to become an accomplished scholar of Islam in his yeah, own I'm right. Yeah, I'm the old guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how, what, I guess the question, I would, uh, the way I would phrase it to you would be, what do you think are some of the major uh, continuities that might be more obvious to us, but maybe some ruptures also, perhaps in Carl's approach to religion and Islam that you might observe from your times as an undergraduate advisee to, to now as a scholar of Islam, if any? So I'll, uh, perhaps, Elise, you can go first. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I guess the short of conversational parody is that Carl is my dissertation advisor and a looming giant in the field. I am, when I applied to UNC to be his student, I wanted to do this Hindu Muslim relationship and history and categories of religion, right? I was, I was right in that wheelhouse. And so there's never going to be an equality between us. I'm never not going to be his student. And so that's a relationship marked by power, but it's also a relationship marked by parity because what Carl's mentoring has done both is like, it has showed me how to mentor myself, but also what it did for me was it took me seriously. Carl took me seriously. He took my ideas seriously. And I might have been well terrified to show up in his office where he'd have this like amazing spreadsheet of all of us working through the program. And he'd be like, okay, Elise, this is where you are. And ask a thousand questions off the top of his head that were always between terrifying and, oh God, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I should probably get my act together. But for me, it was always, uh, that was always my crap. I was terrified because I wanted to impress this mentor. But what Carl wanted to do was talk with me, 
Carl wanted to have a good conversation. And he took seriously that I brought something to the table. That when I came back from a study program in Tajikistan, that when he was asking probing questions, it wasn't a gotcha. It wasn't a, I know more than you. It was a genuine set of interests and, and like an unfailing sense that I should and could be a collaborator, whether that's a formal collaborator or just someone to help us think more about problems that we had in mind that overlapped. And so for me, that parody is, or what I was trying to do with that little phrase was think about those systems of power that often mean that you feel small or unaccomplished or behind. And those things might be true, but they're also really not if you see every opportunity as a way to just know more and I think do better if I if I can imagine Carl's corpus as also contributing positively to how we talk about and think about Islam and religion. So yeah, that's um that's a lot, but I <laughs> I think I think that's one of the things I hold the most dear was that being taken seriously. I think in the years since grad school I, I've come to cherish that even more. Ranan, do you want to maybe talk a bit about your assessment? Or- yeah. Um, so I think I think when I so when I when I first took a class from Carl, uh, this was in 1984, I believe. I was trying to remember, but that's a long time ago from my memory. Um, it seemed like, and I, I think Carl probably even used the term that that most of the professorships in Islamic studies were like Iranian Revolution professorships, right? People were really excited. Let's hire someone to do Islam because now it's important. And clearly, in the past 20 years, it's been more of a response to September 11th, right? Now you've got all these September 11th professorships in Islamic studies. And there's been some massive changes in the study of Islam in the United States. I mean, obviously, we can't talk about them all, but, but I remember talking to Carl um, way back in the eighties and, and, and he was counting how many people were in the American Academy of Religion study of Islam section. And it was like less than a dozen. We're like, well, you know, what can we do? And now of course there's, there's hundreds of people and we actually have right. The international chronic studies association that meets at the same time crossovers and stuff. So, so there's been some, there's been some, um, major changes, I would I would say that in terms of of continuities, um, I would actually probably point out um, like one negative continuity, and then maybe it's even getting worse. And and if all of you want to disagree with me, I'd be happy to hear that. But it seems to me that as we get more quote unquote specialists in Islamic studies, we get less people doing religion with Islamic examples. And I think what I mean by that is that people seem to be studying Islamic stuff so they can understand Islam better rather than using Islam and Islamic examples to critique what we mean by religion in a generic sense. And I know Carl is all about that. It's all about trying to use Islamic examples to, to think about these generic terms. Um, but I, I'm I'm not hopeful that he's still not swimming against the current. 
you know, before I ask my final question, which will be the next project of our three guests, I think it will be, um, I think it's incumbent upon me to mention a theme that also keeps coming up in the volume also is the impact of Carl's publications on the classroom and especially on the introductory course on Islam. Uh, in terms of whether it is the Shambhala Guide to Sufism or following Muhammad, and more recently, how to read the Quran or Islamophobia in America, actually uh, numerous monographs, in fact, that uh, have been used by various, various instructors across, uh, uh, you know, not only in North America, but also beyond, and uh, uh, to provide us with these texts that really work well in the classroom in terms of Islam. And I think that connects to what Elise and Brandon earlier were also saying about connecting more specialized uh, scholarship that is intensely philologically dense, but also being having the ability to then make this switch to these incredibly accessible texts. Um, in fact, why don't you comment a bit on that, Carl? Um, uh, was that on your mind when you wrote texts like Following Muhammad, um, Shambhala Guide to Sufism, etc., that these will be used in the classroom, etc.? Uh, was this a deliberate, conscious choice of yours to access a broader audience in public? Well, uh, Shambhala was, is a trade press, and uh, so I did two books with them, and they've actually sold uh, reasonably well. Uh, I mean, the average academic press book, it will, if you sell a thousand copies, that's considered to be successful. But um, we have bigger audiences out there. And uh, I realized that the training that we undergo, and uh, Elise and Brandon have heard me talk about this because it's a kind of obsession of mine, the training that we do in the graduate school experience results in a writing uh, that is aimed at the smallest possible audience. A PhD dissertation has five readers, and that is a pretty small audience. And I think it encourages a convoluted style of writing and one which, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you mention the article of Professor X so that she won't feel uh, miffed. And Professor Y doesn't want to hear you talk about uh, some particular theory. So it's not really conducive to uh, holistic writing. And uh, so how do you do that? How do you reach a wider audience? And so I evolved a strategy, which I refer to as, um, here I'm revealing my secrets, stealth analysis. And uh, this is um, introducing critical questions, but without technical jargon that exclude certain audiences. Because as we all know from the study of technical terminology, it's designed to do two things, to enable conversation between a particular in-group and to exclude everybody else. So how do you avoid that technical language? That was my challenge to myself. And so, uh, yes, I do believe it's possible to reach a larger audience. And so I think that it would be uh, desirable for all of our uh, graduate school training to include some attention to this because, frankly, we all need to have multiple registers of discourse addressing different audiences. And uh, if we can talk to our students who are intelligent but not uh, extremely knowledgeable about spe- specialized subjects, we can talk to a public that needs to know about these issues. So uh, that requires a deconstruction of the doctoral dissertation superego, which was created during the writing of that project. And so uh, I invite my colleagues to think about ways in which they can they can do that. Shirley, if you don't mind, I'd love to just add to that that I think that I think it just shows how um, 
how impactful Carl's work has been that um, there's a whole generation of us. And Charlie, I have no idea if you have also fallen um, both victim and honorary to this, but the idea that when, when we used to turn in papers, Carl would go through and circle every time we put a word in italics. It's like, if you don't need that technical term, then it shouldn't be there. Why aren't you writing this in the language that you're writing in? But also, I think it assumes that the audience that you're speaking to can and wants to understand you. And I think so many of our fellow colleagues in Islamic studies and beyond Islamic studies and in religious studies really think that talking to the public means pandering or dumbing down or um, glossing over nuance when when really it's about translation. How are you translating the really specific jargony language into accessible language? And I think there's a reason that many of Carl's monographs teach brilliantly, um, not just in the introductory level classroom, but like in the adult learning group that I've facilitated in the state of Vermont, right? Like following Muhammad's a hit there because it's approachable without being, uh, without pandering. And I think folks know when um, snooty academics are acting snooty, but I think they also trust expertise when it's presented to them in a way that they can digest. So um, I just think it's such a wonderful part of how you taught me to de-jargon and stop trying to punch up, but instead just write as I talk. <laughs> no, that's exactly the point you, you understand very well, at least. The, uh, it involves respecting the audience, giving them a chance to see the evidence, and not talking down to them. That is so important. Yeah. And I think stealth analysis is, a, is an interesting way to frame it. I think the, the I think that's the first chapter in following Muhammad, the perhaps second one, the transformations of the category of religion from, uh, you know, Augustine to Grotius, etc. And that's actually a great example. It's a, it's an intensely theoretical chapter, in fact, because it's, it's, it's showing the transformations in the category of religion over time. And I begin almost all my classes with that chapter just to get a sense what we are uh, up to in the academic study of religion. But it's done in this very accessible fashion, and it's it's deeply theoretical, but without that kind of uh, the kind of uh, uh, I guess categories and jargon that would be inaccessible for an undergraduate audience. Um, so as we're coming to the end of our, our time here, there's so much more to discuss. This has been such a fascinating conversation, but I just wanted to give our guests uh, some time to uh, share with our listeners a bit the immediate next uh, sort of project they're working on, article length, monograph length, whatever they want to uh, focus on. Uh, so perhaps each of you could take turns in sharing with our listeners a bit what's uh, currently that you're working on. At least you go first. So what's next? Okay, well, I am looking forward to my very first sabbatical. So I've got a lot of things in the spanner cooking up. Um, I'm working on an article length project on memorialization in India using um, walking tours as evidence for how folks are rethinking the label of Muslim and Hindu at national uh, monuments. And I'm working on a book length project about labels and definitions, thinking about Islamophobia and anti-Semitism uh, in colonial literature. So um, I have a I have a new book that's going to be coming out from uh, Cambridge um, on camel sacrifice of the Prophet Muhammad. And I have to say that Carl is probably it's probably his letter that he wrote that got me the Fulbright that allowed me to do the research. Um, and I'm also working on a, 
I guess it'll be an article. I'm looking, trying to develop the, a kind of typology of ritual touch by looking at Islamic examples. It occurred to me that there's a lot of things you can't touch, and a lot of things, if you touch them, there's consequences, but there's very few things you have to touch. And so I'm looking primarily at the black stone um, when you do Omar or Hajj, and then trying to compare that to some of the things that you can't touch in Islamic law and see if I can then generalize that to religion in general uh, and see, see what I come up with. Carl? Right. Well, I have a number of ongoing projects. Uh, that's never, uh, there's never an end, of course. Uh, but um, the one that I'm really excited about now is something that I just uh, did not expect to get involved with, but it is concerning the Arabic writings of an African Muslim who was enslaved in North Carolina in the early 19th century. And this is uh, Omar Ibn Sayyid. And with a colleague uh, at Duke who is from Senegal and by low, we have, he and I have done a critical edition of the Arabic texts. And in the process, we have discovered that Omar Ibn Sayyid was quoting a large segment of Sufi literature from uh, West and North Africa that was never suspected before. And so we're uh, working on a monograph right now. And what is really astonishing is the fact that his, although his writings were marveled at, they were not comprehended, they were not read, and many, many lies were told about him. And so this is about slavery, about race, about early Orientalism, and about... Uh, making it possible to hear the voice of somebody whose message was never delivered uh, 200 years ago. Words of Experience, Translating Islam with Carl W. Ernst, edited by Elise Morgenstein First and Brandon Wheeler, published by Equinox Press in 2021. Thank you so much, Carl, Elise, and Brandon, for this fascinating and wonderful conversation. It's really been a pleasure, and for this excellent volume that I'm sure will spark some great conversations and really does uh, index the future of Islamic studies in very hopeful, productive, and complex ways. Thank you so much for joining us all. today.